Salt Company, it's about that time. It is about that time. It is about that time where the weather's changing, and so is a single person's heart. <laughs> it's that time of year where dating relationships have fully begun. According to a recent survey, the most likely time for someone to ask another person on a date is the month of October or November. One of the leading researchers at Matchmakers says that uh, these months are most popular because of, you guys are dying to know. Are we good? Okay, awesome. These months are most popular because of the holiday cheer. And according to statistics, um, many of you here tonight have just begun relationships, or maybe you are planning to begin one. Maybe you have a note card crumbled up in the back of your pocket, and you are planning after the service immediately to close in on that unsuspecting someone. And uh, through many voice cracks, ask them on a date to the only place you think you can take them on a date in this town, Pascal's. Um, so many relationships have started, many are trying. Um, if you are dating, I do want to warn you though tonight, maybe don't get too comfortable. According to the same study, it was also found that the most common month for relationships to end is December. <laughs> it's November, people. Uh, the study was very specific that December 11th was the day where it's the most popular day of the year to end your relationship. So if you get through that day, you are in the clear, December 11th. Now here, here's perhaps the most daunting statistic. 85% of relationships that start also fail. They don't end with a ring on the finger but with a gallon of ice cream and a Netflix binge. Um, now, this isn't to discourage you if you're dating uh, or if you're planning to ask someone out. I'm cheering you guys on. And as I thought about it, we have so many godly women in this room that deserve to be asked on a date. And some of you boys need to grow up and just go for it. Don't text, don't Instagram DM, just find her and ask her. She'll appreciate it. Um, I started to preach. Uh, here's the question I want to ask, though. Why? Why do 85% of dating relationships fail? 85%. What is the number one reason why? Well, I looked into a bunch of studies, and uh, there was ma one main reason and then a bunch of other reasons. Let me read you a few of the reasons that weren't the first reason. Um, some of the reasons were distance. Turns out you can date someone from afar. Uh, age gap. You can date somebody older than you or younger than you. Some freshman was like, yes, there's a senior <laughs> that I've had my eyes on across the room. Uh, financial situation. Turns out what you make or what you don't make won't break it. Uh, past relationship history. Getting a little more serious there. Um, one of my favorites on the list was voted for Trump. So I guess... <laughs> That can end a relationship, uh, but it, it's not the number one reason why. Guys, the number one reason why most relationships fail is selfishness. One of the people within the relationship 
was not willing to put the other person's needs, the other person's priorities and plans above their own. And here's what's interesting is that usually one of the people in the relationship wish it had continued. Now, let me ask you a much bigger question. What is the number one reason that a relationship with God fails? What is the biggest obstacle that keeps people from relationship with God? I don't know if you know this, but Christianity in our country is on a rapid decline. A recent study from the NPR just concluded that 50 years ago, people who identified as Christian made up 90% of our country. Today, just 64%. And in 50 years from now, just 34% of people will identify as Christian. And here was the shocking part of this study. The study found that the primary years that people end any affiliation with God was between the years 18 and 22. Meaning that college, the years that you're living right now, are, is the most likely time where people will say, God is not for me. Now, why? Why do so many people in your years end relationship with God or say, he's not for me? Well, there was a bunch of reasons that could have been why, but there was one clear reason why. Some of the reasons that were not the leading reason was family background, um, unbelief in his existence, questioning of why he could allow suffering. Uh, he seems unattainable to reach. Those can all be reasons, yes, but the single biggest reason that keeps people from relationship with God is people said they did not want to follow a God who told them what they could or could not do. Another way of saying that is this. The main reason that people don't want a relationship with God is not because they don't believe that there is a God out there who rules on a throne over this universe, but because they don't want a God to rule on the throne of their life that they're already on. People today are not saying no to God because they don't believe in God. People today aren't saying no to God because they, of how they were raised with God. People today are not saying no to God because they can't draw near to God. People today are saying no to God because they want to be God. Guys, tonight, James is going to highlight a truth that the world has already confirmed. The greatest obstacle to a relationship with God is you. And there's, there is something about ourselves that keeps us from relationship with God. Now, while that is certainly true of unbelievers, James tonight, interestingly enough, writes to Christians, those of us who have relationship with God, and those of us who will never, and I repeat, never lose it. But the reality is, is that some of you who came here tonight feel very far from God. Those of you who know him feel very far from him. Like the relationship with God that you had at the beginning of your faith was this burning fire, and now it's this tiny little ember. That may be some of you feeling very distant, like your relationship is fractured. Well, tonight, James is gonna show us that 
what it is that creates distance between us and God, but also he has good news for us. He is going to show us what draws God near. So if you have your Bibles, open up to James chapter 4. We are in James chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first five verses. James 4, that is where we're at, James chapter 4. James says this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? So James starts our passage off tonight like an episode of Undercover Boss. I don't know if you've ever seen that show where they go in and they're just like, holy cow, there are problems going on. And that's what James says about the church. He says, there's problems going on. And it's not just a problem between two of you, but the whole church has issues. Imagine hearing that if like Jordan or Paul stood up here on Sunday and was like, all right, guys, like, welcome. We're glad you're here. You all got issues and then just like proceeded to call people out. James says there is conflict happening in the church and it's not physical conflict like bar fights and beating each other up, but it's spiritual conflict. He says there's, there's sin, there's coveting, there's greed, there's lust, and it's happening all over the place. Now, James is going to point our attention to three critically important truths about sin. And if you're taking notes, uh, here's the first thing that James says is true about sin. Point number one, our sins, public problems, have a private cause. Our sins, public problems, have a private cause. Look at what James says. He says, what is the source of the wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the passions that wage war within you? Now, one thing you wouldn't know about me is that for the longest time, I've had a choking problem. Uh, yeah, I, for some reason, I grew up and uh, I've always just struggled to swallow things uh, and I choke. And if you've ever choked before, you know that it is literally the worst thing ever. And uh, it really began when I, I discovered it in high school. But the worst time that this ever happened was I was at a dinner. Uh, no, it was breakfast. It was Christmas morning breakfast. And I was visiting Michelle's house. And we weren't engaged or married, but we were dating. And I was trying to make a good impression. You know, you're trying to impress the parents. Like, I'm a cool guy. And we sit down at... Uh, <laughs> at this Christmas breakfast, and her dad has cooked this prime rib, like, all night long. And I sit down, there's, like, the fine china out on the table, and I take my knife, and I cut this piece off, and I swallow it, and it, literally the first bite, and immediately I realize I'm choking. I'm like, oh, gosh. And the thing, when, whenever you choke, um, you really, like, if you want to know if you're really choking, just take a glass of water and drink that, 
And if you're, if you're not choking bad, the meat will go down. But if you're choking really bad, the water goes like goo goo and just like sticks there. And that happened. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I am, this is really bad. And every time you choke, you have two options. The first option is you can immediately tell everyone you're choking. I'm choking, help! And that option has a, like a great pro and a con. The pro is that you typically get your life saved because people see, oh my gosh, like he's choking, let's help him. The con is that you ruin your reputation forever. Um, and it's really embarrassing. Option two is you just stand up and pretend like nothing is happening and walk away and go into the other room and try to save your life. Uh, the pro with this is that you save your reputation. Nobody ever knew you were choking. The major con is that you totally could die. And uh, obviously, I chose option two. I stand up. I'm choking. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I go into the bathroom. I'm like, I'll be right back. And I'm, I'm bent over the toilet choking just all, I'm like, ooh, like trying to get this thing up. And I'm using, you know when you choke, you're using like every muscle. You're using muscles you didn't even know you had. And I've been gone for so long that Michelle finally is like, is Josiah okay? And she comes into the bathroom and yells something to the tune of, help! And I'm like, oh no, like this is all out in the public. Her mom comes running into the bathroom. She goes, get Joe! And she starts giving me the Heimlich. And uh, she's a really short woman, so it was not working at all. I'm like, oh, oh, like this is not working. Then she's like, Darren, get over here. And Darren comes over, and he's a big guy, and he gives me the Heimlich, and this thing is still not coming up. And I'm thinking, it genuinely, that thought crossed my mind. I'm like, I, I really could totally die right now. Like, this might be how I go. And uh, finally, with one last heave, this piece of prime rib flies out. Yeah, it was awful. And uh, my, yeah, reputation was ruined forever. But this has been happening to me for years. In fact, it just happened a couple months ago, and I actually went to the ER. And what the doctors told me is that I have a condition called esophagelitis. That is just a fancy way of saying that my esophagus has been shrunken down to about the size of a toothpick, and I can't swallow much at all. It's like, God's like, this is how you're gonna know me through suffering. Like, I'm gonna just shrink that thing. And uh, that's been this burden I've had. Guys, I share all that to say that what James is saying about our sin is that our sin, our public sin, is always connected to a deeper issue. Which means this, that in order to change the things that you do, you first need to address who you are. And I think sometimes we think about sin the wrong way. We think, well, in order to change who I am, I need to first address the things that I do. I'm going to work harder, be disciplined, read more theology, work, put the, put the clamps down, get after this thing. But guys, that's like telling me with a, a broken esophagus that the only way to heal is to, to swallow harder. James says, no, actually, in order to change what you do, you need to first change who you are. And James says, the real problem that's going on in this church, the issue behind the issues, is a matter of your desires. Look at what he says in verse 4, or in verse 3. He says, you desire and don't have. You murder and covet and can't obtain. You fight and you wage war. Verse 3 says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you spend on your pleasures. James says, your problem is connected to your desires and your pleasures. 
And what did he say these people desired most? Well, verse 3, your pleasures. The Greek word for pleasure is where we get the word hedonism. And hedonism is a belief that the greatest purpose to your self-existence is satisfaction, self-satisfaction. So, so just to put this together, James is saying your problems, your sin, your conflicts, the brokenness in your life all boils down to one singular issue, a love for yourself. A word that we use to describe that is pride. The issue behind the issues is pride. What I want to tell every single person in this room tonight is that the greatest problem that you and I will ever have in this life is not a lying habit, a pornography addiction, a gossiping tongue, a greed issue, respect issues, body obsession, drunkenness. No, all of our sin can be traced like a trail of footprints to a monster who lives in each of us named pride. A deep down love for ourselves. And pride, it, it expresses itself in many forms from lying to boasting to insecurity to self-exaltation to self-righteousness. It takes all kinds of different forms, but it has the same goal, worship me, exalt me, me. That's the greatest problem that you and I have here is pride. But I want to tell you something worse. Our pride never accomplishes its intended goal. Here's point two about our sin. Feeding yourself always leaves you hungry. Feeding yourself always leaves you hungry. Here's the tragic issue with feeding the monster of pride. The monster is never full. James says you desire, but you don't have. You murder, yet you don't obtain. You think serving yourself leads to the life you want, but all it accomplishes is conflict, war, and emptiness. Now, we might all agree with that. We might say, yeah, pride, it's the worst. I hate pride. So why is it so difficult not to give in to our pride? I struggle with this so greatly to not let my pride control me. Well, let me tell you a couple reasons. First is this, because every single person in this room is at war. You're like, I never enlisted. You're at war, <laughs> spiritual war. Notice what James did not say. He did not say, you just give in to your desires. No, what did he say? You are at war with your desires. There is an internal battle going on in your heart. Remember here that James writes to Christians. He says, for those of you that follow Jesus, you, inside your heart, there are two heavyweight fighters. And on one side is the flesh and the devil. He's over here. And then weighing in on the other side is the spirit and God over here. And these two forces of flesh and spirit are going head to head all day long. Paul used this language when he was speaking to the Galatians. He said, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. In the book, Brothers of Karmazov, it says, God and the devil are constantly fighting and their battlefield is the heart of man. Here's the incredibly tricky thing. I'm just gonna tell you a few things about 
your dev- about the devil, your opponent. Um, he doesn't attack publicly. He actually has one signature move. It's to lie to you. And here's the problem about him is he's the best liar who's ever lived ever. Jesus says that you, by your, you only speak lies. The devil, he's a master liar. And, and here's what he's saying. Here's his message, his lie every single time. If you serve your immediate desires, those immediate desires you have, you will finally find joy, satisfaction, and life to the fullest. That's what he told Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Eat the fruit. Just do what you want in this moment. Serve yourself and you will experience life. And here's what I've noticed makes his lie so believable sometimes. Because the message, his message, isn't just his message. It's also the world's message. The world where we live says the same thing. And this is the polluted air that you and I breathe in and breathe out through our lungs every single day. The world says things like, follow your heart. Just listen to your heart. The only sin in life is to not listen to you. Do what makes you happy right now. College is the time to explore. Sleep with who you want. These are the years. No regrets. Speak your truth. You. Anything that restricts you from immediate happiness is not worth your time. You know, our world says what Queen Elsa says in Frozen. Now, I'm not about to bash... (laughs) Frozen. I am, but, but I love Frozen and I love Queen Elsa. Uh, here's what she says. Listen to this lyric in a song that you've never heard. It's called Let It Go. Um, she says this. She says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. <laughs> What'd she say next? I'm free. Let it go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, But here's a question. Are we actually free? Does listening to yourself bring real freedom? Maybe you found actually that every time you give in to your desires and watch pornography, that you don't feel satisfied, complete, and whole but actually alone, shameful, and longing for things that are even more distorted than before. Let me ask you, are you free? Maybe the further that you push sexual boundaries and sexual explorations with him or her, the less satisfied, close, and connected you feel, but the more disconnected and empty you are. Are you free? Maybe the more that you lie to your friends and family about what's really going on, who you truly are, the less you feel like you're outrunning your problems, but the more that they are catching up with you. Are you actually free? Maybe tonight you've, you've experienced the true nature of the world, one where unrestrained self-indulgence and glorification has not set you free from your problems, but made you a slave to them. I lied to our staff team this week. I lied to our staff. We were sitting in the back room and we're all sharing things about our week and what we did and I just said something that was completely untrue. And in the moment, I think I told myself like, no, if you lie, like they're actually going to respect you and love you. They'll think like, you're great. You're an awesome employee here at Salt Company. 
The next day, you guys, I got caught in the lie. Stephen pulled me over in the janitor's closet. Have you ever been caught in a lie before? It is top three worst experience of your life. When somebody goes, this is what happened, I know. You're like, <gasps> You know, I thought that it would bring about peace, but it actually did the exact opposite thing I hoped it would do. Guys, if we're just honest in this moment, can we all admit that self-satisfaction in the moment always promises the peace we want, but down the road, it always causes a conflict we hate. You see, all of us are on a hunt for satisfaction, but here's the problem. We desire long-term satisfaction, and can I suggest to you tonight that you will never have enough in this life if God doesn't first satisfy your soul. That person, that thing, that experience, that luxury, that career, that, those things will never truly satisfy your heart. St. Augustine said the human soul is restless until it finds its rest in God. You and I were built, we were made with the kind of God-shaped hole on the inside of us that no human being can fill, that no experience can fill, that no amount of alcohol can drown out, that no kind of illicit sexual experience can satisfy, the longing that your soul feels, no amount of money can quench it. Why is that always the case? Because you and me, we were only made by God to worship God him. The very one who handcrafted you, who brought you into this world, made you for a purpose, and it was for worship, not self-glorification. And so every time that you eat the world's fruit, that the devil promises will bring you life, it actually brings you death. Now, this is bad. <laughs> this is not great. But let me make it worse. Our sin has Perhaps the greatest consequence, point three, our sin, our pride, makes us enemies of God. Our pride makes us enemies of God. Let me reread verses four through six. James says this. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Notice what James says. He doesn't say, hey, when you live for yourself, that's kind of offensive to God. James says, you can't serve yourself living for the world and also serve God. You can't do both. In fact, you don't just offend God when you live for yourself. You become his enemy. Now, why is James so serious here? This is scary language. I think because what James knows that is true of people then is still true now, that many people, especially I've seen within the church, want Jesus as their savior, but not as Lord. They want the blessings of God without following the instructions of God. 
I've heard it said this way. A lot of people want to drive the vehicle of their life, do, 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 driving along, and they say, hey, Jesus, what's up, man? Get in my car. We're going to go on this adventure of life together. Here's the thing. You're going to ride in the trunk. I'm going to shut that thing down. And then I'm going to make all the decisions for my life, drive around, do what I want. And then if I hit a pothole or the tire breaks, I'm going to get you out and you can help me fix the problems of my life. You guys, that is not how Jesus enters your life. Uh, You might say, well, no, I would never put Jesus in the trunk of my life. Jesus Right in the passenger seat, man. I want to be close to you. I want to be next to you. I want you to give me some advice. I'm going to post you a few times. We're going to be close. We're going to be seen together. What up, Jesus? Let's go. But ultimately, I'm going to be the one driving. You're going to sit there, and I'm still going to keep my hands on the wheel. I'll let you have my Thursday nights, but not my weekend. You can be Lord of my Instagram bio, but you won't tell me how to run my life. I'll worship you on Sunday. It's a great day. But you can't tell me what I can and can't say. You can be God over some things, but not all things. You won't tell me what I can or can't say, what I can do, who I can't sleep with. You won't tell me what I can and can't drink, who I will be. And though you might never say it like that, that's how some of us live. But friends, what it means to be in relationship with Jesus is to say, you become Lord of my life. I no longer am just driving. I give you the keys. I say, you drive, and I will do whatever you ask of me. I will give up my life for you. In fact, Jesus, when he was teaching on earth, he was regularly drawing a crowd and turning many people away because following him meant fully surrendering your life. Following Jesus does not mean you become Lord of my Thursdays and Sundays. It means you become Lord of my life. You become Lord of my money, my career, my time, my sexuality, my words, all of it. And this is not so that Jesus can just bind you up so that you'll never have joy. No, this is because he knows. He knows that none of those things actually lead to long-lasting joy. James is calling us very seriously, this is a serious text, to examine our lives. And let me just ask you this. Are there any areas of your life tonight where you know God is saying, no, no, And you're saying, yes. Are there any ways that the Spirit would say, you have been unfaithful with me, with the world? Does what you're saying in here match up to how you're living out there? Maybe tonight you know and you love God, but there is an area of your life of serious compromise that God is maybe bringing into your mind as I speak. Like, I, I hate that part of me. I wish that wasn't true, but I don't want to give it up. Listen, James is serious here. He says you can't serve yourself and serve God. And, and remember here, he's writing to Christians which is why he uses a picture of marriage. He says, you adulterers, which is a marriage term. He says, don't you know that the spirit that lives in you yearns jealously 
God is jealous for our affection. This isn't a bad kind of jealousy. This is a right kind of jealousy. This is a jealousy, a good kind of jealousy, like Michelle, my wife, would be jealous if I was flirting with other women that weren't her. Why is it okay? Because I belong to her. And tonight, God says to many of you, you belong to me. I bought you at a price. I poured out my wrath on my own son so that I could call you mine. Any of your interaction with the world that doesn't glorify me, but just worship and exalts you, it's like spiritual adultery. And guys, there's some tonight in this room who you're here, but you have everybody fooled. You're like me, my junior year of college, who had everybody fooled. Everyone. I had the double arms raised every Thursday night. I had Jesus coming out of my lips, but what nobody knew about my life is there was rampant sexual morality that I was not okay with addressing. And the problem is, is that when you profess Jesus in here, but you don't live for him out there, you massively misrepresent him. God says, I won't allow people who are compromising in their life to flourish. Let me ask you this. What good is it if you have everyone in here fooled and for you, but God knows you and opposes you? Here's the temptation with compromise as a Christian especially is that because we know we've offended God, we tend to hide our sin. We tend to bury it. Just, oh, that's not who I am. I don't want to be like that, so I'm going to hide it. And it's really out of this deep guilt that says, I've messed up so much that if I was to bring this to people who know me in my life, they would never accept me for who I was again. And not just people, but God would never accept me again. But here's how the message ends. And I want to tell you tonight, that if that's you, this kind of living the duplicit scene, God has not given up on you. God would have you back tonight. Look at what he says in verse six. It's underline it, please. Verse six, he says, but he gives greater grace. But he gives greater grace. What an amazing hope and promise that tonight God would meet any of us who have been living in sin and compromise and wickedness with outstanding grace. I, uh, I met a homeless man a couple months ago at a gas station, and Michelle and I pulled up in her little Hyundai, and we were getting out to get gas, and he came over to us, and this poor guy was just this small little man who just looked really bad. He was in a lot of dirty clothes, and he um, came over to my car, with this little rag, and he just kept begging me. He said, can I just clean your car for 50 cents? Can I just clean your car? And I was like, for 50 cents, clean my car? I don't need the car cleaned for 50 cents. And he just kept saying that for 50 cents, please, 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 please. 
And uh, I grabbed his hand. And I took him inside. I said, you're not paying me a thing. And I took him over to the ATM. And let's just say I pulled out a lot more than 50 cents. And I handed it to him. I said, this is for you. You're not going to clean anything today. And he looked at me, and he didn't even know what to say. He just stood there in shock. He started crying in front of me, just thanking me again. I'm crying because I want you to know tonight that God sees whatever mess that you've gotten yourself into. He says, I see you where you're at. I see you where you're really at. How desperate you are. And I have more love for you than you know what to do with. I have more compassion than you could comprehend. I have more forgiveness for you than you would know what to do with. I have more grace for you than you could carry out of this room. And it would be all available to you tonight. Here's how you receive it. Verses seven through 10. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a promise. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see the promise, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before me and I would exalt you. I get the sense that there are people in this room who tonight have been convinced that their sin has driven them so far from God that he would never forgive me. And that if I was finally honest about who I was, the struggles that I really had, the sin that was really going on, people would reject me. But you guys, what God says is that actually, if you confess who you really are, that's when I meet you with a tidal wave of grace. I would meet you tonight I would forgive you tonight. I would redeem you tonight. I would restore you tonight. Like the prodigal son, as far as you've ran away from me with the world, I would run faster after you with my grace. If you would just merely come home, if you would look at the pigsty and say, this isn't for me, what am I doing? And you would come back. God would pick up his robes and run towards you and say, prepare the feast. My son is home. I'll meet you tonight.
please don't let your love for people keep you from honestly admitting tonight where you're really at. God says, I'll meet you with grace. I don't care if you cause so much brokenness in here that everybody hates you, I would be for you. I would meet you. And here's why I know he would. Because he already has. Jesus Christ came and he humbled himself to the point of a man, to the point of humiliation on a cross. And he so humbled himself that God took him and exalted him on the third day and gave him the name that is above every other name. So that at every, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus humbled himself to give us a picture of what it looks like to humble ourselves and to show us God would meet you with grace. Let's pray. Lord, I don't even understand the depths of your heart. But I know, God, that you have grace for someone in here tonight. The interesting thing about James's final commands is that in order to humble yourself, you first need to submit yourself. Maybe tonight there's someone in this room who needs to submit themselves before God. For the first time, they need to transfer their citizenship from their reign to yours and say that Jesus is king of my life. I'm making a stand for Jesus today. Oh God, would there be even one tonight that would say, I'm willing to humble myself before you. And God, would there be many who become honest for the first time, not out of fear of what people would think, but knowing that you would meet them with grace, that you love them, you adore them, and you would have them back to yourself. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.